Part two, chapter sixteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. After riding the entire line from the right flank to the left, Prince Andrei made his way to the battery, from which, according to the staff officer, the whole field was visible. Here he dismounted and leaned against the last one of four unlimbered field pieces. A sentry, who was pacing up and down in front of the guns, started to give Prince Andrei the military salute, but at a sign from the officer, desisted, and once more began his monotonous, tedious march. Behind the guns were the gun carriages. Still farther back the horses were picketed, and the bouviac fires of the gunners were burning. At the left, at a little distance from the outmost gun, was a new, wattled hut, in which could be heard the lively voices of officers, talking together. It was true. From the battery a view was disclosed of almost all the disposition of the Russian forces, and of a large part of the enemies. Directly in front of the battery, on the slope of another hill, lay the village of Schöngraben. Farther, both to the left and to the right, could be distinguished in three places, through the smoke of their bouviac fires, the masses of the French troops, the greater part of which were evidently stationed in the village itself and behind the hill. At the left of the village, in the smoke, something that resembled a battery could be made out, but by the naked eye it was impossible to distinguish it clearly. The Russian right flank was distributed along a rather steep elevation, which commanded the position of the French. Here were stationed the Russian infantry, and at the very end could be seen the dragoons. At the center, where Tushin's battery was posted, and where Prince Andrei was studying the lay of the land, there was a very steep and direct descent and approach to a brook separating the Russians from Schöngraben. At the left of the Russian position, the infantry were engaged in cutting wood in the forest, and there also arose the smoke of their bouviac fires. The French lines were much more extended than ours, and it was plain that the French could outflank us easily, on both sides. Back of our position was a steep and deep ravine, along which it would be difficult for artillery or cavalry to retreat. Prince Andrei, leaning on the cannon, took out a notebook and drew a plan of the disposition of the armies. At two places he indicated with a pencil certain observations to which he should draw Bagration's attention. In the first place, it was his idea that the artillery should be concentrated in the center, and in the second place, to transfer all the cavalry to the other side of the ravine. Prince Andrei, having been constantly thrown with the commander-in-chief, and occupied with the movements of masses and general arrangements, and having diligently studied descriptions of historical engagements, found himself involuntarily trying to forecast the course of the action, but only in its general features. He imagined that the engagement would probably occur somewhat as follows. If the enemy attack the right flank, he said to himself, the Kreef grenadiers and the Polodian Jaegers will be obliged to hold their position until the reserves from the center are sent to their aid. In this case the dragoons may attack the flank and cut them to pieces. In case the attack is made on the center, we must place on this elevation our central battery, and under its protection we can draw back the left flank and let them retreat down the ravine and echelon. Thus he reflected. All the time that he was in the battery by the cannon, he had constantly heard the voices of the officers talking in the hut. But, as often happens, he had not noticed a single word that they said. Suddenly he was so struck, by the tone of sincerity in the tone of their voices, that he involuntarily began to listen. "'No, my dear,' 
said a pleasant voice that somehow seemed very familiar to Prince Andrei. I say that if it were possible to know what was to be after death, then none of us would have any fear of death. That's so, my dear. Another voice, evidently that of a younger man, interrupted him. Well, whether we're afraid of it or not, it's all the same. There's no escaping it. But all men are afraid of it. Yes, you know so much, said a third lusty voice, breaking in upon the others. You artillerymen know so much because you can take with you, everywhere you go, your tipples of vodka and your rations. And the possessor of the lusty voice, evidently an infantry officer, laughed. Yes, all men are afraid of it, continued the first familiar voice. We are afraid of the unknown, that's it. It's no use saying the soul goes up to heaven. Why, we know very well that up yonder there's no heaven, but only the atmosphere. Again the lusty voice interrupted the artilleryman. Come now, Tushin, let us have some of your Travnik. So that is the very same captain who is at the Salter's tent, in his stocking feet, said Prince Andrei to himself, glad to recognize the pleasant voice of the philosopher. The Travnik you can have, said Tushin, but still, as to comprehending the life to come. He did not finish his sentence. At that instant a whiz was heard in the air, nearer and nearer, swifter and louder, swifter and louder, and a cannonball, as though unable to say all that it wanted to say, plunged into the earth not far from the hut, tearing up the ground with superhuman violence. The ground seemed to groan with the terrible shock. In a moment the little Tushin came running out of the hut ahead of the others, with his after-dinner pipe at the side of his mouth, his kind, intelligent face rather pale. He was followed by the possessor of the lusty voice, a young infantry officer, who hurried off to his company, buttoning his coat as he ran. End of chapter 16